Go ahead and grab a seat, grab your Bibles, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're one of the kids in here, you should have gotten a special bulletin. If you are a young one in here and you did not get a special bulletin, if you could raise your hand, uh, or if mom and dad could raise their hand, then, then Pastor Chris will, will get one to you, or, or somebody will if you need one. Kids, on the inside part of that, there's some fill-in-the-blanks there I want you to pay attention to. There's a part of the sermon I'm going to come to in 1 Samuel 8 that I'm going to summarize. I'm going to ask you to, to give me some of the answers of the fill-in-the-blanks, and so you get ready for that. Here at Redemption Church with, with Kids Ministry, we, we spend some of our time with kids in here with us, and they get to worship with us and sit under the Word with us. And then two Sundays out of the month, the first and the third Sunday of every month, they're in the hideout across the hall. And the really cool part about when they're in the hideout is they are learning the same stories almost every time that we are learning in here. And so, so Mom and Dad, we're doing that for you. Listen up, Mom and Dad, we're doing that so that uh, as you get done afterwards, you can have conversation. So even when they're in here, we've got a special bulletin based off of what we're going to be studying this morning in, in the text. And so we're trying to equip you to be able to do discipleship at home. And so you can kind of talk about this more as you go. And if you want more resources on how to do that, then just see me at some point, And I would love to talk to you about some other resources that you can use to do some more discipleship at home based off of what we're preaching. And, and so uh, I'd love to be able to talk with you about that. Um, I want to talk to you about, we've been talking in the book of Judges, uh, as we went through Judges and Ruth, and kind of the, the cycle of Judges. I want to tell you another story with cycles, a fun story in my life. What you got to understand about me, is I told my wife when we got engaged, I said, before you say yes, there's something you need to understand about me in my life. And, I, and she'll tell you I wasn't exaggerating, although she thought I was at the time. I told her, I am in God's personal sitcom. Things don't go normal in my life. I, if, if my life were a sitcom, there I have several stories in my life that are real true stories that would make great season finales. Um, and I'm going to tell you one of those this morning about a time that I shut down a bed and breakfast. Um, and so my wife helped me when we shut it down. It no longer exists, no longer bed and breakfast. And uh, it was a bed and breakfast in a fine dining establishment. And I had become one of the chefs there. And, uh, and I actually got to where I lived in the attic. I lived in the attic. We'd set a bed and stuff in the attic to use the bathroom. I had to go find an empty room uh, that wasn't being used, and that's where I got to shower and things like that. And I was in charge of maintenance, cooking breakfast, and in the fine dining establishment, I was being trained to be the sous chef uh, under this incredible chef. Of all the chefs I ever trained under, this guy was the best. But there was a problem at this restaurant. It was owned by a consortium of dentists and doctors and lawyers and people with money, but no knowledge of how to run a restaurant. And they had this horrible cycle where they would bring in a new chef and they'd give him three months, almost always on the dot, three months to turn this thing into the most successful restaurant in the city. And if they couldn't pull it off in three months, they'd fire him. They'd, I mean, they were burning through chefs like crazy. And you may go, maybe all those chefs were bad. I want to tell you, almost every one of those chefs that got fired from those places started their own restaurants that are still some of the most successful restaurants in the city to this day. If you go to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, I can list you several restaurants you should go visit, and almost all of them are started by former chefs of this one place. The problem is... When you're an out-of-town chef and you get moved in, you don't know all that baggage. You don't know the cycle that has happened. And so this chef that I got to train under didn't know the cycle. 
Him and his wife and kids lived in the, in the, uh, in the suite there that they had. That He managed the bed and breakfast and the restaurant. He brought me on, and I, got to, I worked my way up until I became. And so almost like in three months, in the three months that this guy was a chef there, I worked my way up to almost being sous chef and being maintenance manager and loved it. This guy, I mean, look, we would cook the, the dinner special that night together, me and him. And that would be our dinner. And I would do everything he did. I mean, I would watch everything he did. And still somehow his tasted better than mine. This guy was that good of a chef. Uh, and he had given him a heads up. He'd given the owner, owners some heads up that, hey, it's going to cost us a little bit in the beginning because what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a lot of food away. I'm going to go to food expos. I'm going to bring in influential people and give them free dinner. And so our profit margin's not going to hit for about six months because I got to get word out. You guys have, have gone through cycles and I got to get word out. And so they said, yeah, sounds great. Sure enough, right about the three month mark, they bring in a hire a consultant. When they hire the consultant, the chef, the head chef goes to the owners and goes, hey, I want you to shoot me straight. Usually when you bring in a consultant, that means I'm going to get fired. And so I just want you to give me like, just shoot me straight. Do I need to up my resume? They said, no, you're doing a great job, man. He goes, all right, good. He comes back and sure enough, on a Sunday afternoon, this became their cycle, I learned. On a Sunday afternoon after church, they called him in. They set him down. They said, you got three days to get your family out of here. So now he had three days to figure out somewhere to live with his wife and kids, even though he'd done a great job. Well, you have to understand, I was a brand new believer and not very mature, right? So this is not a story of a, a moral example that you want to follow. So I got mad and I decided, I'm going to teach them a lesson. We're going to figure this out. So me and the head, the, now, now the head chef, I, so I'm immediately bumped up to sous chef. He's the head chef. The consultant takes me outside and he says, he, he starts really building me up. And, and he says, man, we want you to manage the front of house all the waiters and waitresses, and we want you to manage the, uh, the bed and breakfast aspect of it. Um, and so, because you live here, you can go ahead and do that. And so I'm making like nine fifty an hour at this point. And so I said, is there like a, a bump in pay that comes with this bump in responsibility? Uh, and he goes, and no lie, he goes, well, there's like a three-month probational period. Well, I just start laughing. I was like, yeah, I've heard about the three-month probational period. Like, I'm not waiting until the end of the three-month probational period to get some money here. Uh, and he goes, so what are you going to do? I was like, me and the other chef had already decided we were lining up jobs somewhere else. We had already developed our plan. Here's what we were going to do. We were going to call in the owners on a Sunday afternoon, just like they had done every single chef. And we were going to call them in on a Sunday afternoon and go, hey, guys, it's just not working. We're out. And we were going to walk out together. What are they going to do without their other chefs? The only other two chefs in the whole place was one guy who is a horrible uh, pothead, drug user, slow to do anything, really couldn't accomplish much of anything, uh, and so other than follow some basic orders. And the other girl was the classic example of went to culinary school but didn't know anything about cooking. So you didn't really want to leave it in their hands, and so we knew we were going to put them in a bad spot if we left. So that night, um, we're, we're going around. The consultant, the, my boss is fired. The consultant's there. He's flying. The consultant's flying out. It's a Saturday night. Consultants flying out Monday morning. Our plan is the next day, Sunday afternoon. But that night, the consultant comes in and he makes fun of my name. I was the only one with a key to the wine cellar because I was the only one that didn't drink. And so I was the only one that they trusted to have a key to the wine cellar. And, and so the consultant comes in and makes fun of my name to the, to the now head chef. And he goes, where's old Jimbo Billy Bob with the wine cellar key? 
And the head chef had a little bit of a temper on him. And so he got real mad and he came to me and he goes, we're doing it tonight. I said, tonight, not tomorrow. He goes, no, he just made fun of your name. I was like, bro, my name's Jimbo. My name's been made fun of my entire life. I'm used to this. This is fine with me, right? And he goes, no, we're quitting tonight. I was like, all right, this will be fun. Uh, and so, so the guy that goes out, he's telling me how great I am, that he wants me to run the, the bed and breakfast. And, and I said, look, man, I've heard of your three-month probational period, and I just think I'm, 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 out. I'm out. I'm not going to stay here much longer. And he goes, well, what do you mean by much longer? And I said, well, there's some guests here tonight, and this is not their fault, so I'm going to set breakfast out for him in the morning, and then I'm out. And he's like, what? What are, you, what are you doing? He gets real angry. He starts cussing me, using words I'm not allowed to use. And, uh, and I just laugh. And I said, man, listen, you guys have done this to chef after chef after chef, and I'm not putting myself in that position. So then he goes, what about Glenn? What about the other chef? And I said, well, Glenn's his own man. You've got to talk to Glenn. I'm not going to answer for Glenn. And so we walk in. The consultant, we're walking into the kitchen. Consultant's head is like, like one of those cartoons where steam's coming out of his ears. His face is red, and it's, and it's bulging out. And he like... Big eyes, eyeballs, Glenn, the head chef. Glenn, outside, let's talk now. Glenn looks at me like, kind of to get the like, hey, did you do it? And I was like, yeah, I've already said. And he goes, all right. So they go out, the door opens, the door shuts, and Glenn's already coming back in. I go, well, that was a much shorter conversation than mine. And he goes, yeah, I use words that you won't use. You already said what you were doing. So I just said, yeah, I'm out, bro. And then I'm just not going to even allude to what other words he used. But you can use your imagination of how Glenn decided to tell him that he was out. So then I call my wife and I tell her what's going on because now the, now the guy goes, I don't even want you cooking breakfast in the morning. So he looks at the other chef. He goes, I want you to cook breakfast tomorrow morning. The guy goes, man, I don't do breakfast. That's too early in the morning, man. So the consultant looks at the other girl and no lie, like he looks at her and he goes, Like, he just knows I can't leave it in her hands. And now he's really angry because he knows he's dependent on me to cook breakfast tomorrow morning because he can't be there. And so he cusses me up and down. I call my wife. We're just dating at the time. And I call her and tell her what's going on. She gets mad. Look, my wife's a sweet lady, but she gets mama bear real quick. You want to see my wife get mean, you start making fun of me. And my wife's claws come out. So she calls all of our friends in college, which I'm a brand new baby Christian, and so most of my friends aren't believers. They're out enjoying some other things that night. They get word, and they, the guy says, I want you to move all your stuff out of the attic tonight. The problem is the stairs come through the dining hall. So all my friends who have been partaking of alcoholic beverages all night show up. They're all theater majors, by the way. So they're singing, dancing, acting, acting all wild and crazy, moving all of my stuff out of the attic, through the dining hall, all of a sudden, one of the dentists, one of the owners shows up. He walks right up to me, looks me dead in the eyes and goes, I've got you under my skin. And just starts singing. And he's like got hatred in his eyes. So then my wife was on the housekeeping staff. And so she quits. And then some of the other housekeeping staff hears and they quit. The wait staff hears that we're not going to be there. They quit. And within two weeks, the whole place was shut down. And it's now a women's rehab center with the best smokehouse of any women's rehab center you've ever seen in your life. I, I want to tell you that story, one, because I think it's fun. But two, we, we have a tendency, like the owners of that restaurant, to never be satisfied and to never be patient, Right? See, the problem with the owners of that restaurant is they didn't know what they were doing, did they? 
See, it was a bunch of dentists and doctors, which are great people. I love dentists and doctors. Well, I love doctors. I don't know so much about dentists just yet, but I love doctors, and, and they're great people, and lawyers can be good people, and, but they didn't know what it takes to run a restaurant. And they were impatient, and they, weren't, they, they, they constantly went through this cycle like we talked about in the judges. And so the Israelites are going through this cycle over and over and over. And as a matter of fact, just like that restaurant probably had one of the best chefs they've ever had at that time. Israel gets one of their best judges in Samuel. And Samuel's leading them really, really well. But in your pew Bibles, turn to page 188. We're going to read. Stand with me, if you would, as we read God's word. We're going to read the whole chapter. And then we're going to kind of come, we'll summarize part of it and kind of come through and look at what it means for Israel to demand a king in this story, what this means for us. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them And show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Kids, this is part of the bulletin where that inside part of your bulletin comes in. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, And they said, no, 
but there shall be a king over us, they, that, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word, I pray that you would move in our hearts to help us understand that we will only find peace and contentment when we rest in you as king. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word and not mine. Lord, for I am incredibly inadequate to be up here. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm no king. But you are. So I'm asking that you do whatever you got to do to get me out of the way. And speak to all of us, including me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, at the beginning of the story, we see Samuel. Samuel kind of preparing to pass the torch. Uh, this week was my birthday, and my kids, very sweetly, uh, took their money, their fun money that they've gotten through different things, and, and they paid to take the whole family to go see Cars 3. Anybody seen Cars 3? Raise your hand. Only a couple of us. All right, so it's a good movie, um, and I'm a, I'm a crier in a good movie when it gets emotional. I'm just going to confess that to you. I teared up a little bit watching Cars 3 because it's this beautiful story of passing the torch. It's this beautiful story of kind of almost like cross-generational discipleship happening in the movie of Cars 3. And, and so we're sitting there, and I'm glad that the movie's dark so that I can fight back and just not say anything. No actual tears came out. I held them in. Um, but it's this beautiful story of that passing of the torch and this idea. And Samuel's kind of preparing to do that. But you've got to understand a little bit of Samuel's story. Uh, Eli had been ruling and judging over Israel. The judges over Israel, if you don't remember, out of the book of Judges are these like military, somewhat sometimes religious leaders over Israel. And Eli had been doing a really good job, but unfortunately, he wanted to pass it on to his sons. Although that's not the way that God had really set it up is for him to pass it on to their sons just yet. And so Eli wants to do that, but his sons get corrupt and, and it doesn't really work out very well. And so Hannah is this lady at the beginning. We'll tell her story another day, maybe years from now. We'll come back and tell that story where she prays and God gives her Samuel. And Samuel becomes Eli's protege. And Samuel really honestly does a phenomenal job. Samuel does an incredible job. He's one of the best prophets and judges of Israel ever. He does this incredible job. In chapter 7, right before this, he's gotten them victory over the Philistines. He's had them turn over their idols and, and, and repent and turn back to God. And, but he's tried to pass it on to his sons as well. And he really gave them good names. We've, we've laughed through these Old Testament stories at some names. Chris had some particularly fun names in his story of Ruth. And, but, but like for once, they, they did a good job naming their kids, right? Sometimes they name their kids sickness or, or whatever. And it's just, I don't know why you do that. But this time he names his kids well. He names them Joel and Abijah. Abijah means my father is Yahweh. Joel means Yahweh is God. 
Um, these are great names, but the kids basically become congressmen, and they take bribes, and they corrupt justice, and do things the way that they want to do, and the way the lobbyists tell them to do things. Not that I have a bone to pick there, but we see the passing of the torch here, and uh, I, I, as I thought about that, kind of that cross-generational discipleship, I want to take a moment just to celebrate not yesterday, but last Saturday, uh, a lot of our ladies gathered together, uh, and, and we had ladies from, it wasn't all the ladies, but we had just like a s- small group of ladies, and successfully, I want to I brag on, on what they did, successfully had women from every generation in our church at a lunch gathering to get to know each other and, and love each other and talk about what God's doing in their lives. So can we give up for that? Give it up for that. That's, that kind of stuff needs to happen in church, right? That kind of, those kind of relationships need to keep happening. And so unfortunately here for Samuel, he's getting old as they tell him and uh, his sons aren't suitable people to pass on everything to. And so it says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Um, But Samuel has served them well, and they come to him. And it's a little bit hurtful when they demand a king. But the key phrase there is, like everyone else. And so you'll see in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9, this kind of like everyone else thing. I'm sure you heard from your mom at some point. If you didn't, maybe you weren't as reckless as I was. But when you said, hey, but everybody's doing it. What, what's the famous phrase from that? If everybody were jumping off a bridge, would you do the same thing, right? And this is kind of their mentality of, look, we are tired of getting defeated by all these foreign nations. Over and over and over again. We want to be like them. We want to have a king. We want to have a centralized army. And we want to be able to defend ourselves and have peace the way that we know we want peace. And so verses 4 through 9. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together in unison, basically, and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Probably not a great way to start the sentence. Isn't that right? And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. I want you to stop for a second and catch how Samuel responds to this. One, he's been called old. Two, he's been called a bad father. Three, he's basically been told, you're fired. We want somebody else. But how does he respond to all this criticism? He prays. In our Bible study group this morning, we were discussing this. And if you miss Bible study groups on Sunday morning, I'm telling you, you're missing a lot of what we do. We're discussing in Bible study groups the same passage, the same topic that we're discussing in here. And it allows us to go deeper and better understand God's word because just a little side sermon for you, it's going to be God's word that transforms you in your mind and in your heart and makes you more like Jesus. It's not going to be anything else. And so in our Bible study groups, we further discussed this. And one of the things we talked about was, what if, married people in here, what if in your marriage, when conflict started to arise, you stopped and said, let me go pray about this. 
Now, it's really difficult to do that in the moment, isn't it? Because, like, you got zingers in your back pocket you want to throw at your spouse. Like, you want to remind them of all their failures and mess-ups, and you want to throw something at them. But what if, instead of elevating, what if in letting that escalate, what if instead of letting that escalate, you said, hold up, I'm going to go pray about this. Or what if you were bold enough to say, let's pray together about this. And together, hey, listen up, men, especially. This is kind of your role to lead in the house. Sometimes we let our wives be the superior spiritual leaders in our homes, and we forget that that's, that's our role that God's given us. And listen, ladies, I, I applaud you. When you step up, when your man falls short, my wife does it when I fall short. But men, this is your role. Step up in the house, and you lead spiritually. You lead that. And so what if you at that moment said, hey, sweetie, this is kind of getting out of hand. Let's, let's pray. Well, that would change things, wouldn't it? It'd be a game changer. What if just at work? What if in your conflicts at work? What if your conflicts with your friends? What if, what if any time you came against criticism and conflict rather than fire things back? Because I would be honest with you, when you come at me with criticism, I immediately have a list of everything you've done wrong. Right? You come at me with things you think... I, look, you come at me and say you're getting old, your sons are horrible, and you're fired. My initial reaction may not be prayer. It's probably going to be a list of things I want to point out that you fall short on. But what if I were to stop? What if we were to stop in that moment and and pray like Samuel does? What a great example Samuel gives us here. Continue on. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You've got to think all the way back to the first time that this language of God being king comes in. It's in Exodus chapter 14 and 15 as God takes them through the Red Sea and delivers them from the bondage of Israel and wipes out the Egyptian army and they're officially free from Egyptian oppression. God declares himself as their king. And so God tells Samuel, look, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as king. According to the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. It was just in chapter 7 that Samuel had to bring up the altars to Baal and the Ashtaroth. And, and so they're constantly going in this cycle of idolatry. And so they're doing this to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What do we understand? The problem here isn't necessarily that they want a king. Because if we go back, and we're going to go in just a minute to Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and start flipping there, you can. It'll be a good thing to mark and study later. We're just going to hit a couple of verses out here in just a second. But if we go back, we realize that God wanted them to have a king. But one of the key things he says in Deuteronomy 17 is that they are to have a king once they possess the land. Now think back to our sermon in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 1, verse 28, it says they did not drive out the Canaanites, but they subjected them to forced labor in their might. We talked about last week how this was really kind of the beginning of, of their, their, their turmoil because in their might they thought they could subject their sin to themselves, and we do this ourselves. We talked about that, that we try to domesticate our sins, but we forget that that sin will always own us when we let it stay around. It'll always come back. And so this is where that cycle begins. But God wanted them to have a king. We needed to see how easily, though, we slip into idolatry here. Anytime we try to take God off the throne, 
you got, you got to catch the weight of this. Anytime we try to take God off his throne and put anything or anyone else there, we are committing treason against the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Listen, think about this. This is not... This is not like this insanely evil thing, of seemingly, right? All they're saying is we're tired of getting beat up by all these other nations. The judge's system is, is working by the skin of its teeth. We want a king and a centralized army so we can beat these guys and not deal with this stuff anymore. We want to be like everybody else. We want safety. We want security. We want to know that there's somebody looking out for us. And God goes, but haven't I been? Haven't I been? See, you got to catch just how, look, listen, look at your life and you got to catch just how easily we slip into idolatry. Just how easily we try to take God off his throne in our lives. We do this in our finances, don't we? We do this when, when we wrestle. Listen, I, I'm not one guy to hammer on tithe, but I want to tell you that the tithe is one of those ways that, that God will reveal your idolatry to you. If, if, you are, if you are waiting till the end of the month and see what you got left, and I'll give God a little bit of what I got left, or if you do that with your time, right? Uh, look, I, I'll read my Bible with whatever time I have left in the day. Or you do that with your service. I, I'll, go, I'll go serve somebody if I end up with time this week, but I got so much other things going on. With any of those things, we, we, we tend to give the world our best and, and give the God the rest, right? And, and we're pulling him off his throne. And we, gotta, we have to understand that that's not small. Right? A lot of times when I'm sharing the gospel with people, they'll say, yeah, my sins really aren't that great. What you need to understand is your sins are treason. Your sins are walking into the throne room of the king of kings and pulling him off his throne and you sitting down. Tell me any throne room you can do that and not get your head cut off. We serve a God of grace and mercy, though, who allows us to do that over and over again and then constantly remind us, he didn't even need the throne anyway. He's always been the king, whether we acknowledge it or not. See, our role here isn't to make him king. He is king. It's for us to understand and acknowledge him as king. What if we, what if we vocalized our idolatry when we did it, right? Because they almost like real clearly vocalize this, don't they? What if we vocalized our idolatry? What if what if when we press snooze, instead of waking up and spending time in God's word, and now we rush to work and we haven't spent any time in God's word and prayer, what if when we press snooze, we had, we had a special alarm that requires to say, I've decided to worship the altar of me instead of the altar of God, and so I'm going to sleep some more. What if you had to say that out loud every time you press snooze? What if when you were addicted to, I had a friend addicted to snuff and I recommended to him dip, I recommended, what if you wrote on the can, I am choosing to worship the God of me rather than the God of the earth by finding my comfort in this dip. And then what if before you open that can, every time you, you said that out loud, he quit dipping. Right? What if, what if we vocalized even these little things of, of idolatry? What if we said them out loud, when we seek 
the pleasures of the world when we've gotten the warnings of Scripture, we've read God's Word, it's told us, don't go this path, and we choose to go that path anyway. What if we just were honest enough to say it out loud, I'm going to choose to worship at the altar of me. I'm going to choose to worship at the altar of comfort. I'm going to choose to worship at the altar of convenience. I'm going to choose to worship at the altar of money. I'm going to choose to worship at the altar of fill in the blank for whatever altar it is that you keep going back to like they keep going back to Baal and Ashtaroth. What if you said it out loud every time you did it? That'd be weird though, wouldn't it? I mean, people would think that you're strange. But isn't that kind of the point that God has here? See, the thing that messes up God here, what gets, what gets under his skin, what's bothering him about everything they've just said is, is this little bitty phrase that they, they put onto it, like all nations. God never wanted them to be like all the nations. The word holy means set apart, unique. He wanted them to be a holy nation. Listen, he wants you to be holy. And that means to be set apart. So yeah, it would be weird if we vocalized that, but you're supposed to be weird. Now, a holy kind of weird. Some of you are just a wholly different kind of weird. But you're supposed to be a holy kind of weird. We're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. That's the point that God has here, is that I'll give you a king, but it's not going to look like everybody else. Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 15. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So God knew this was coming. And then he continues and he says, basically, if you read the rest of Deuteronomy 17 there, he says, he's going to be a scholar of God's word. He's going to have his own copy of the Torah that he's going to handwrite himself. He's not going to centralize the army. He's not going to go get horses in Egypt. He's not going to go back to slavery. He's not going to send people back to Egypt to get horses. He gives these kind of detailed things about what a king will look like. But it's his way, and it's never going to look like the rest of the world because we were never called to look like the rest of the world. G.D. Watson says, Others may be allowed to succeed in making money or may have a legacy left to them, but it is likely God will keep you poor because he wants you to have something far better than gold, namely a helpless dependence on him, that he may have the privilege of supplying your needs day by day out of an unseen treasury. We have to redefine success in our lives. And we cannot, listen to me, we cannot define success by comparing ourselves to others. We can't. We cannot define success the way the world defines success. Because when we do, we end up compromising and giving God conditions we end up giving God conditions to how we'll serve Him. 
Lord, I got to take care of my family first, though. I got to make sure there's food on the table and clothes on their back and a roof over our head. Jesus knew you would say that. And so in Matthew chapter 6, he said, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, but pursue, everybody say first. Pursue first. Not and pursue. Not make sure you make time to pursue. Not wake up early enough to pursue. Not once a week pursue. Not twice a week pursue. Not just in your checkbook pursue. Pursue, everybody say it again, first. Pursue first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the rest of this will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. Right? Pursue first. But we so often think, no, I got responsibilities. I got a family. I got things I got to take care of. Great. You think God doesn't know that? As a matter of fact, he knew you would say that. And he said, do you think I don't know about your issues? Do you think I don't know about your concerns? Don't chase things like all the other nations. He uses the word Gentiles in Matthew 6, but I need you to understand the word translated Gentiles there is the same word for nations. Just like the cry of Israel here, he's warning you not to make that same cry. I want to be just like everybody else. Where the greatest gift God could give you is dependence on him. And listen, sometimes he's got to take things from you to make you dependent on him because you won't choose it if you've got those things already. Right? There's a story of the cutting of the troops with Gideon last week. He cut the troops so that Gideon had to be dependent on him. You need to understand that you will only find contentment when you rest in Jesus as king. You will, the secret to contentment. Last week, the secret to spiritual victory was spirit being, being aware of your weakness and being exclusive in your worship. This, this week, the answer to contentment in your life, no matter the circumstance, is resting in Jesus as king. As king. Not as co-pilot. As king. So, one of the ways that this plays out is in church. We've created in Western culture this consumer mentality of church. Church shopping. And we say, I want to go to that church because they have people my age. Or I don't want to go to that church because they don't have people my age. I want to go to that church because they sing the songs I like. Or I don't want to go to that church because they don't sing the songs that I like. I want to go to this church because they have these programs. Or I don't want to go to that church because they don't have these programs. And we, in our worship, start to, start to detail these conditions on how we'll serve God in being a part of a local body. Uh, and I, listen, I, I want to challenge you to, if you're considering... Listen, if you're considering making this your church home, if you're considering making somewhere else your church home, if you're just visiting and making this part of your list, or if you've been here for a while and you're getting sick and tired of me and you want to leave, here's what I would challenge you, and I would warn you like Samuel warns them. Don't make it about a list of pros and cons. Don't make it about a list of preferences. Don't make it about a list of programs. Don't make it about the kind of people that go there or the kind of people that don't go there. Make it about where God calls you and do the hard work of seeking out God in His Word and His will and let Him lead you even if it's somewhere you don't want to go. Because all God desires of you is obedience. How do we define success? With one word, faithfulness. Everybody say faithfulness. Faithfulness is how we define success. Are we faithful? Are we obedient? Do we do what he calls us to do even when it doesn't make sense? Because you've got to understand sometimes faithfulness does not equal success the way the world defines success. 
Oftentimes, faithfulness does not equal success the way the world defines success. I want to hit again for Samuel 8, 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. We've got to make sure we go to the Lord in our times of trouble. Instead of turning to our own strength, instead of turning to what others have, instead of turning and looking at other churches, instead of turning and looking at other people, instead of looking at our neighbors, instead of looking at our coworkers, go to the Lord. Ask the Lord for direction, not your horoscope. If you can't say amen, you can say ouch. Um, <clears throat> lesser kings are not worth the cost. I want to summarize. I want to ask kids in the middle of your bulletin, what are the, some of the things, kids, what are the, some of the things in the middle of your bulletin, if you got it filled out, what are the, some of the things that a king will take from you? You my kids, you can yell it out. Huh? Sons, your sons, they'll take your sons, your daughters. Huh? Your food. Can't hear you. Say it one more time loud. Fields, your fields. All right, so listen. Here's how, that's very good. Give it up for the kids. Good job. I'm going to summarize it this way for you. Lesser kings, the warning that Samuel gives them, lesser kings will cost you your loved ones. Because here's what he says. He says, here's what's going to happen when you serve this king. He's going to take the best of your sons and daughters to serve his court. Look, when, when, you, when you go home, take that section. Look at every time the word take and his is used. Over and over, take, 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 for his, for his, for his, for his. He says, if you go the way of all the other nations, here's how it's going to play out. He's going to take your loved ones, the best of your loved ones. He's going to take the best of your land. So the way it was partitioned out is each tribe had shared land. If we were all in the same tribe, then we shared that land. He said, he's going to take the best of that out of each tribe. And then he's going to take the best of your land in the sense that out, even outside of that, you're going to then have to give him 10% of what you grow on the rest of the land he left you. Then he's going to take the best of your livestock. But listen, even more than that, and this is where we've got to be careful, people. We've got to be careful. We so often get nervous about our resources and our earthly things that we cling so tightly to them. That when We need to understand that when Jesus says count the cost, he says he may cost you all those things too. Jesus says he may cost you. Listen to me. Following Jesus may cost you your loved ones. Following Jesus may cost you your land. Following Jesus may cost you your livestock, your possessions, your money, your success the way that you define it. But the key thing, the only one that really matters on this list, in a scary verse, verse 18, and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In the cycle of judges, it's this constant cycle. But the really cool part about that cycle is every time they cried out to God, God sent them a judge. Right? Every time they cried out, every time they cried out to God, He sent them a judge to deliver them. And they'd have a whole generation of peace 
every time they cried out. And Samuel gives them a serious warning here, way more than the land or the loved ones or the livestock or the possessions. It'll cost you your Lord. And Samuel says, listen, you go this route. You take God off the throne and you put your king on the throne. Here's what's going to happen. There will come a day when your king will cost you more than you think it's worth. And when you cry out, God's not going to answer. God's not going to answer. Listen, you got to stop bargaining with God and saying, Lord, I'll go to church and I'll serve you if you'll do this for me. Right? Lord, I'll give tithe this week if you'll make sure I get that promotion. I'll sow that seed and claim that reward so that you can give it to me. Listen, that's not the way the gospel works. The gospel says that Jesus is worth costing you everything. That even if it costs you all that you possess, all that you love, if you get Jesus, it's enough. The gospel is that Jesus is enough. That the only way we get contentment in life, regardless of our circumstances, is when we find our rest in Jesus as our king. Not as our president or prime minister or senator or representative, but as our king, sovereign over us, without being elected, without being voted on, without any accountability, king. You don't get a say in how he does it. You submit entirely to him and what he tells you to do. And he's worth the cost. So real fast, I want to do a case study in the first three kings they get. First one is Saul, a case study in self-deception. Saul is tall, dark, handsome. He's all of those things that I'm not. First Samuel 9, 2, and, he's, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. That's what my mom says about me. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, the most handsome. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I'm pretty sure he was taller than him in all his places, but from the shoulders up, he was taller than everybody. The problem is Samuel gets caught, Saul gets caught in sin. He was told to get rid of the Amalekites, and he was told not to plunder. He was told to get rid of the Amalekites entirely. Get rid of them entirely and don't plunder anything. And what does he do? He stops short of complete obedience and plunders all the spoil. So Samuel comes and calls him out on it. And when Samuel calls him out on it, Saul goes, no, nah, man, I didn't do that. I did exactly what you told me to do. And Samuel goes, hey, I don't know if you remember this, but I'm a prophet. And so me and God, we talk like directly. And he told me exactly how this went down. And Saul goes, oh, Well, what had happened was that we took all that stuff so that we could worship God better with. Don't we say that sometimes? Lord, give me this promotion so I can have more money so I can better serve you with it. Lord, give me this influence so that I can do that. Lord, give me this spouse. Give me marriage. I want to be married so bad. Just give me a spouse so I can live that out. If you'll give me this, I can use it to better serve you. You know what Samuel says to Saul? The Lord would much prefer your obedience to your sacrifices. He'd much rather have your obedience. And so Saul has all the looks, but it doesn't end well because we can look like we've got it together. We can look the part, but God cares about your heart. I didn't even intend for that to rhyme. But we're going to go with it. 
You can look the part, but God only cares about your heart. So 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, And Samuel said, has the, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion, listen to me, for the rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Listen, that presumption is the same thing as idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And so what he tells him is, look, you'll be king till the day you die, but it won't pass on to your sons. I'm going to raise up a man after my own heart. And we know that that man is David. Right? And so next week we'll talk about David more. All I want to say about David is this, is we do a case study on how even the best of us are inferior kings. Right? So David really... He plays the part better than anybody in all of the history of Israel. There is more ink spilled in the Bible on David than anyone else other than Jesus. So we're going to do a whole sermon on him next week. But what you need to understand is as great as David was, and I'm not even going to read those verses for a second time, I'm just going to tell you this, David typifies this type of king that God had desired for Israel as this biblical scholar and all these things, yet he had this huge, glaring, Moral failure. So next Sunday, we'll talk about David. We'll look all at the story of David next Sunday morning in Bible study groups and in here. Uh, It's fifth Sunday, and so the kids will be in here with us again. But then the following Sunday, it's going to be the one time we're not studying the same thing as them. We're going to have the kids are going to study the story of David and Goliath. Uh, We're going to look at, we're going to close up the Old Testament on that day, first weekend in August, on the prophets. But the kids will be looking at David and Goliath in worship in the hideout. So kids, you don't want to miss the first Sunday in August. It's going to be incredible. Um, But we need to understand about David is even, listen, even the best of us are in desperate need of Jesus. There's no one here that hasn't tried to take God off his throne. There's no one here that hasn't committed treason against a holy God and that doesn't deserve. There's no one here that doesn't deserve hell for eternity. Right, listen, rightfully so, God, the King of Kings, should punish you to hell for eternity. But graciously so, the King of Kings delivers us. Last king, I want to show you is Solomon before we close. Solomon is a case study in self-sufficiency. I'm going to summarize the things about Solomon for you real quick as we look at this case of self-sufficiency. One of the things we see about Solomon is where Saul looked the part, Saul was good-looking, he was handsome, he's tall, he, he's this warrior-looking dude, and you'd think he's the guy. Solomon's got the resume. Solomon pulls off all the, listen to me, all the measurable forms of success. He gains peace. He's the first king of Israel to gain peace for his people. But what you need to understand is one of the ways that he does it is through hundreds of marriage alliances with foreign women that bring in their foreign gods that lead him astray. So we look at that success and we miss what really happened. Just like Moses striking the rock, he did it in his own power. He gains wealth and power, but how does he do that? By reinstituting slavery amongst his people. We look at Deuteronomy 17 where it says, don't go get horses from Egypt Don't send your people back to Egypt. I really never want you going back there ever again. And what does Solomon do? He sends people back to Egypt to get horses. Specifically, what Deuteronomy 17 said a king should not do. Not only does he do that, one of his marriage alliance wives is the the daughter of Pharaoh. 
who brings in her false gods and leads him astray. Just because someone looks like they've got it all together, it doesn't mean they do. We all stand on level ground in desperate need of a king. Because here's the good news. Here's the good news. Samuel warned one day, your king's going to take you down a path and I'm not going to rescue you when you cry out. And that happened. Solomon's son split the kingdom. 20 generations of a northern and southern kingdom and kings in each. There's a report card in the Bible for these kings where it basically says eight out of 40 get a passing grade. The rest of them are epic failures. And it ends with the Israelites being exiled to Babylon. And they cry out and God does not return. But here's how gracious our God is. He does return. And not just as an earthly king, but the king of kings returns. The king of kings comes and he brings his kingdom. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news, which basically is a military term meaning the establishment of a new king and a new kingdom. The gospel of God, the good news of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is our call this morning is to repent and to believe the gospel, to receive Jesus as our king, because we don't just do that once. Just like the Israelites, we live in a cycle, don't we? And right when things get good, we start depending on ourselves and we got to turn back to him. And so your call today is to repent. Because here's what you need to know. Is that grace is extended to you today, but not for forever. Because one day he'll come back again. And his kingdom will be fully realized. Revelation 19.16. On his robe, when he comes back, and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings. Everybody say, King of kings. Lord of lords. Today, you can choose to repent and receive Jesus as your king fully or you can reject him. Those are your only choices. To try to receive Jesus as king with some level of condition is to reject him entirely. We have to understand that. So if you've never received Jesus as king, or if you need to do it for the 5,000th time today. Listen, I'm not talking about, if I, when I say that, I'm not talking about getting saved for the 5,000th time. I'm saying as part of your, your spiritual growth, once saved, once you get saved, you're saved. You're adopted. You're in God's family. But, but the thing is, is we then continue to surrender to this sin over and over and over again. And we have to continually lay our lives down as a living sacrifice before the King of Kings. And so if you are a child of God today, I'm not asking you to get saved again. I'm telling you to daily deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, repent of your sin where you've tried to make yourself king and receive Jesus again today as your king. Remind yourself today, remind yourself, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my king. I serve Jesus as my king. Or maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've always had conditions. And listen, I want you to hear clearly, if you've always had conditions, if there's never been a time where you've completely surrendered to Jesus as your king, 
then you are not his child and he has never been your king. But he loves you and you can do that today. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at our hearts and see where we have given you conditions, I pray that you would reveal to us our idolatry. Reveal to us the conditions we've given you. Lord, let us today, if maybe just again, Surrender to you, or maybe for the first time, surrender to you as Lord, as King, sovereign King over us entirely. Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit move now. In Jesus' name I pray.